to the Allegorical Life. This is the podcast where we discuss the metaphors of life, leadership, and everything in between. Welcome back to another episode of the Allegorical Life. My name's Jordan, and as always, I'm here with Mark Rosweller. By way of introduction, for those of you who don't know Mark, he's worked in crisis, security, and emergency management for over 30 years. His experiences, both personal and professional, have taken him into the world of philosophy, often intersecting with the worlds of theology and mythology. Mark often talks both nationally and internationally about these intersections and how they shape the way we think, speak, and act. He talks about the ways that they can influence both the quality of our leadership and, more importantly, the quality of our lives. Mark, great to be chatting with you today. We're talking about your recent blog post, Leaving the Cudgel of Moral Superiority on the Ground. Now, in this post, you're writing about leadership character and how it's never been under more scrutiny than it is currently. And also about the fact that we find ourselves shaking our heads in dismay when we look at leadership and calling for major systemic, institutional and cultural reform. We keep expecting and wanting better and leaders are coming up without the goods. Why are we so disappointed in our leaders? That's a big question, Jordan. I think we'll start with a big question. Um, I, th- I think for many leaders, they've moved. They simply they've moved away from what people expect from leadership. Um, in my research, it was really glaringly obvious in, in my PhD research that when a leader exemplified virtue, to be honest, to be truthful, uh, to have integrity, to show compassion, or be patient, for example, then it inspired um, people below them to be the same way and. And they really did expect their leaders to be like that. So they expected virtue from their leadership. And when they didn't get it, of course, it um, it tended to suggest to the, to the person who was following the leader that they couldn't be that way either. So this notion of exemplification is really important. Um, I think we, we live in a society that is so driven by material success and you know economic prosperity is really seen as the highest moral good in most Western economies, and people wouldn't necessarily admit that. You know, if you, on the surface of it, they say, "Well, that's not true." But if you dig around a bit and have a look at how we construct our narratives in uh, our societies, and, and particularly the political discourses that uh, shape much of the, the way we think and speak and act, then the economy is at the top of the tree, and that drives efficiency and effectiveness and outcome, and much of the ethics that sits in organisations that, uh, that that sort of underpins all of that is what's called utilitarian. So it's very much about the greatest good for the greatest number or, in other words, um, you know, achieve the outcome, not not necessarily at any cost, um, but certainly not worrying about the characteristics of leadership, So, which are virtuous or, you know, what's known as uh, virtue ethics. So... I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's a, there's an expectation in Western society that the economy is the highest moral good and materialism and all those things that come with it and the success that attaches in institutional life and people are striving to be successful in institutions and they'll get there by simply achieving the greatest good for the greatest number in front of those who hold power and they don't really care how they do that. In other words, they don't really reflect on their own character and how important that is. So the character aspect of... Uh, our ethics is really relegated to the private realm in modern Western society. And and if virtue is 
uh, raised, it's usually raised in the context of weaponizing. So we tend to throw virtues at other people or have virtues thrown at us. You know, you need to be more compassionate or, you know, or you need to be more truthful or, you know, whatever the case might be. That may well be true, of course, but um, when you weaponize a virtue, you're sort of moving towards shaming somebody. And unfortunately, when we shame people, there's three things that happen essentially. They uh, feel they feel like they're bad people, so they don't think they've done a bad thing. They actually feel like they're a bad person. They go small, so they shrink, and um, and they stop talking. Uh, and probably the fourth thing is that they'll dig their heels in and fight back. And none of that is progressive, and none of that moves us to a better place. So, um, so I think a lot of people are caught in that trap, and we're seeing it play out, you know, globally, institutionally, and, and even locally, for that matter. So, it's a big problem. I think unless we return back to the virtuous nature of leadership and what it means to be truthful and trustworthy and have integrity and show patience and be kind and have compassion, until those things get set a stage again, I think we're going to struggle to relate to our leadership or probably more importantly, our leaders are going to struggle to relate to us. And I think that's the biggest problem at the moment, Jordan, is that, excuse me, leaders are um, moving further and further away from reality or further and further away from the people they've been asked to lead. Mark, do you think we've got a right to expect more? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, leadership um, is a complex thing, of course, but Essentially, with leaders, we're trying to do one of three things. We're trying to move people in a direction they otherwise would not go, had not thought of going, or are too fearful to go. I think I've mentioned that in a, a previous blogs. And so, in other words, we have to inspire people. And I think it's important to inspire people. And in order to do that, then there are certain standards that we expect from leadership if we're going to move in a direction that we would otherwise be uncomfortable with um, or may not necessarily agree with. So... So I think it is important, um, and I think integrity is really at the heart of it. To what extent does a leader have integrity? And, and when I say integrity, I'm talking about moral integrity. So uh, in, in the literature, that you know, it's a bit, bit theoretical, but I think I think it's also quite practical. They would argue that Adolf Hitler had integrity because he did exactly what he said he was going to do. How good as he wasn't successful at it, but but he still committed to a path, a very destructive path, and he followed through. Um, so I make the distinction with integrity that it must have a moral basis. And that morality must be around truthfulness or compassion, again, around the virtues, uh, kindness and so on and so forth. So uh, should we expect better? Absolutely. Uh, who sets the standards? Well, we should set standards for ourselves and for our leaders, and we should be jointly meeting them. So uh, it's probably unreasonable to set a standard for somebody else that we're not prepared to meet ourselves. Um, and I think this is the great dilemma in leadership that, and again, I looked at this in my PhD about the notion of relationality. There is an obligation for us to look after our leaders as well as our leaders to look after us. So in other words, we might have to self-reflect on our own standards of morality, our own standards of ethos, um, and work on them at the same time. Now, that's not to excuse poor leadership nor to compensate for it, but it is to make sure we avoid hypocrisy which is really the essence of what I was saying in the blog, that we've got to be careful we don't become morally superior. So when a leader's failing us, failing us ethically or morally, and we've seen plenty of examples of that in Australia at the moment in our institutions, we just have to be mindful that we're not slipping away as well, that we're not dropping our own standard. Um, I think that's 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 a, potentially a really big problem. Superiority is a terrible place to be because it also distances uh, two people from each other. 
we don't we don't need to do that. We need to be in relationship. We don't need to be you know further pulled apart. So yep, it's quite reasonable to expect higher standards, to expect better. Um, the behaviour that's been exemplified in our you know very uh, senior institutions in Australia, politically and uh, industrially, so to speak, has been largely unacceptable. There's been some reasonable behaviour as a retort. There's been some you know good exemplification of leadership. Uh, in trying to move the issue forward, so it's not it's not all bad, but there's enough bad in there for us to be quite concerned that unless leadership picks up its game and lifts its standards, we're just not going to get to the place we want to be collectively, which is you know a happier, healthier, and safer society. So, if people are discontent, if leaders are under scrutiny and not performing, what is the way forward? How does this situation get resolved? I always say these things start with self, um, and, and I have to put a qualification to that because you know whatever you and I might change in order to exemplify what good leadership looks like may not make it all the way through to the heads of our institutions, for example, or the heads of our political elite. But um, I, I do argue that um, virtue and and uh, those things that attach are quite contagious. So I think the um, COVID-19 is a really good metaphor, actually, because it spread so easily throughout society, spread across the world within about two weeks. Um, virtue has the same effects. that It's contagious. So when people have the courage to show virtuous leadership, um, it's infectious. So we, we saw that with Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, uh, Jacinda Ardern more, in a more contemporary sense that... People are inspired by that sort of leadership and tend to take on those traits. So so it does require a lot of courage, but I think the more people that can step up and, and show courage, moral courage, in how they lead encourages and incentivizes others to do the same. So it's basically the ripple effect. Um, it's probably not going to start from the top, to be straight up about it, it probably isn't. It's probably got to start from about halfway down. And in the lectures I give, uh, you know, to many organisations and educational institutions, I often talk about microculture, where I'm talking to mid-level or senior leaders or mid-level leaders, but they're not at the top of the, the tree, but they've still got influence over others. And I say, well, look, within your sphere of influence, exemplify what it means to be virtuous. Um, you'll be surprised how quickly it catches on. Um, not only that, you'd be surprised how quickly people want to come and work for you because increasingly in this day and age, particularly with the younger generations, they're very interested in the ethics of the leadership and how they're going to be treated. Um, and throughout the course of my career, you know, what defined leaders was not what they achieved. It's how they treated people and how they made them feel and that's how they're remembered. Their, their achievements are third or fourth on the list how they treated people and how they made them feel is at the top. And that's the legacy you leave as a leader. And, and I wish more people understood that. It's not a zero-sum game. You can't walk over everybody and expect nothing else, nothing to happen. And we're seeing this on the global stage at the moment in the geopolitical instability of Europe, where we've got leadership walk, trying to walk over the top of another country. And, and it's yet to play out, Jordan. We've got a long way to go before we see the effect of that. But we're seeing... Uh, entire nations or the people of entire nations saying, hang on a minute, that's just not acceptable. Uh, nobody asked for this. It's not acceptable. It's a, it's a leadership regime which is totally disconnected from its people. And it'd be very interesting to see how, how it plays out in the next six to 12 months. Um, more power to the people, of course, and particularly to to reason, you know, common sense, uh, virtue. What You know, what unites us is far more profound than what divides us. 
Um, and sometimes these world stages of conflict, particularly when they're illegitimate, often tease out the best in people. Um, there's some really good writing on this. So Sebastian Junger wrote a book called Tribe, uh, and he describes, uh, you know, how uh, global conflict and war brings people together in quite unique and spectacular ways, really. It really shows the best of humanity. And it rarely comes from the top. It usually comes from the bottom. It usually comes from the groundswell of people who take a stand and don't allow those uh, illegitimate leadership behaviours pervade into their communities or societies or local groups, and they show a level of leadership which is impressive, and it's coming from the bottom up. Um, so I'm not suggesting rebellion in institutions, but what I'm saying is that people need to have the confidence and the competence to know that wherever they sit within an institution, which is generally speaking for most people not at the top of it, you can still shape and influence that culture. You can still uh, have an effect which is positive. Um, and I would encourage people to do that because I can't see it changing from the top. Uh, I, th I think there's so much pressure there and so much distortion and so much addiction to power uh, and influence that it's, blind, it's blinded itself. It cannot see the nature of virtue. And Jordan, virtue is tough. It's at some point, we end up compromising ourselves. There's in um, normative ethical theory, there's a theory called dirty hands theory. And if you take a purely virtuous path in politics, you will end up hitting dirty hands or getting dirty hands. In other words, you'll have to compromise yourself. And it's the nature of politics that it's not a, you can't be perfect. You cannot be a perfect person in politics. That the issues are so complex that you're going to end up compromising yourself. And one of the examples that was given if I recall it correctly, it was Henry Kissinger, the the uh, US Secretary of State under Nixon and then uh, Carter, I think, from memory. Um, and he was asked by the US Senate, was he was he talking to China? And the truth of the matter was he was talking to China. He was opening up diplomatic channels, uh, which the US government thought was essential to a, a stable geopolitical world. And um, But America wasn't ready for that conversation, so he told the Senate that he wasn't talking to China when, in fact, he actually was. And that was revealed at some point when uh, the US president visited China or, or the Chinese president visited the US. I can't quite remember the sequence of events, but nonetheless, he was accused of lying. Um, he had to get his hands dirty for the, for the greater good and for the, you know, the, the peace and stability of humanity. So, so I'm not in any sense suggesting that people should be perfect because none of us are. We'll talk in our future blog about fallibility and hypocrisy. But nonetheless... Um, we should expect that from our leadership, but I just can't see it happening from the current senior leadership in institutions. I think they're too caught up in, in regimes of power and influence uh, uh, to really know how to trade their way out using virtues to do that. I, I think it's got to come from the nurturing of future leaders and younger leaders coming through that can be more skillful and take those attributes forward into their leadership into the future. Allegorical Life Podcast. So Mark, courageous leadership sounds amazing, but not easy in practice, particularly when you have to manage upwards. Do you have any guidance or tips for people in leadership ranks who are um, wanting to do good work in this space? Yeah, I do. Um, I'd say, first thing I'd say is be wise about it. You, you want to live to fight another day. So you have to choose your battles. Um, sometimes 
Buddhists will say sometimes, um, you know, they they won't speak. They they purposely won't speak. So it's um, so non-speech is a, an affirmative action. They they actively choose not to say anything because they can't see any benefit in doing so. So there could be harmfulness rising up, but they realise that if they speak now, there'll be even more harmfulness coming, uh, either their way or the way of those they're trying to protect. So, so I think there's an astuteness that's required. But I think also and a little bit of patience because uh, circumstances do change over time. So sometimes the harm that rises will fall away fairly quickly. It's not ideal, of course, but sometimes patience is the best way. Uh, sometimes circumstances change where you can act and you can speak. Um, and I think that's important to know that uh, it's, it's often it's all in the timing about how something is corrected or voiced. Uh, and sometimes there's information that's missing. So we can't see the full picture. So things might be unfolding in a way that looks very unpleasant or unacceptable, but we've got ignorance in our minds. We don't know the full picture. And, and often we find that, it, you know, th- throughout, uh, over time, we realise why something was the way it was. And we're kind of glad that we didn't act too harshly or too quickly uh, or too judgmentally at the time because we were not fully cognizant of everything that was going on. So it's a complex answer, Jordan, because I think it's a complex issue. But I think courage starts with wisdom. It starts with active and deep listening. It needs patience. Uh, it needs timing and it needs sustainable commitment. So you can't always fix everything in the moment, but you can fix most things over time. And I've been in circumstances, you know, in high-level, highly politically charged, high-level political meetings where things are off the rails and it just was not appropriate to speak at that time. And I remember one circumstance where about 40 minutes later, it was absolutely appropriate to speak and I spoke. Uh, But I just, I seemed to know when to speak and when not to speak. Um, and I think part of that is having enough humility and not judgment in your mind to say, well, hang on, just before I launch here, how much do I know about the problem? Is this the appropriate time? Am I going to cause more harm and suffering to myself and others if I speak now? Uh, will time buy me a little bit of space to think about this a little bit more and, and perhaps act with a little bit more wisdom you know, sometime in the future? And sometime in the future could be five minutes' time or it could be tomorrow. Um, and so I think that's the complexity of be, being courageous in leadership with virtue or morality or ethics is that it's, it's a complex space and, it, it's, you know, it'll be necessarily imperfect anyway because we're imperfect. But but if you commit to it, Jordan, if you commit to a life of uh, ethical leadership, or, uh, you know, you commit to a moral life, which is the, the most rewarding life because it's the most meaningful life, then really it's about getting better at these things as you get older and, and learning from mistakes and errors, and but not giving up, never never giving up the objective of being, you know, more, more virtuous with wisdom as you get older. I mean, it's very Aristotelian. It's, it, Aristotle spoke a lot about practical wisdom, um, and we'll talk about that in a future blog as well. But uh, it's doable. It's uncomfortable. Um there's a, there's a question of potential moral injury. So some people are asked to do things which is morally outrageous, causes them great distress and moral injury. That's really unhelpful if that happens. What can ease the tension in that space is trying to get to the why question. You know, why is something happening? And really try to profoundly understand the circumstances that everybody finds themselves in 
this, and to, to really get that and dispel as much ignorance as possible to try and ease any moral tension or, or moral heartache that's that's arising at the time. So it may still be uncomfortable, probably will be, but it will be tolerable or you'll have adaptive capacity to deal with it uh, or, or, you know, quote, unquote, you'll, you'll be able to live to fight another day. But for some some people, it's just unacceptable at the at the point at which it occurs, and probably because the behaviour is out, outright outrageous, and it needs to be called out for what it is, and and people call it out and they suffer the consequences. But I think that's when the consequences are worth the suffering. There's a, there's a saying that you know I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees, uh, and I think that's what courage calls us to do sometimes. Sometimes the price is enormous, but it's still worth paying. That's what makes courage so um, so difficult, but so honourable, is that the you know ultimate courage will cost us our life, and it could be the metaphorical life. You know, it could be our life in Institution X because we took a stand and we paid a price, but it was a price worth paying. And really, only the individual can determine that. To what you know, what price are they prepared to pay? Um, you know, quite quite subjective uh, and quite uh, contextual but certainly worth thinking about. And, Mark, is there anything else that you'd like to add in summary? I think the whole point of leaving the cudgel of moral superiority on the ground is to say, look, it's really important to see it from the other side. Um, We know that wrongs, bads and hurts occur and they occur through poor leadership. We know that standards need to lift. Uh, We know we all need to get better. And I think that's, that's part of the human journey uh, that applies to all of us, not equally, of course, but it does apply to all of us. I think the best thing we can do with morality is not beat people up with it, not become superior or righteous, but see it as a good in its own right and try and collectively move in that direction and lift standards such that everybody benefits. So if you're in a, a majority position and you're beating up the minority, I suggest you stop it and listen to what they're saying. And if you're in the minority and you've been given a voice then I suggest you don't seek retribution by beating off the majority because, again, it just creates more suffering. So it's hard because the human mind wants to become righteous and it wants to be right and it wants to be perfect and all those sort of things, but it's just not helpful. So we need to get to a better place collectively, which means a shared understanding of the space in the middle, uh, get back to mutual respect and mutual regard, some sense of agreement, some sense of honour, and courage and respect and dignity and move forward on the issue and and understanding there may be a residual tension, there may be residual disagreement, there may be an agony about that, but but we can sustain through it. We can get through that agony and get to a better place collectively over time. So the whole point of this blog, Jordan, was to say just be so careful with moral superiority and harsh judgments because... You know, people slip off the radar or fall off the fall off the perch on their morality for a whole host of reasons. Some of those we find acceptable, some we find unacceptable, but we still need to help to get them back to where we need them to be. And if they're willing to do that, we should work with them. If they're not willing to do that, then of course there's always consequences to action. That's just simple cause and effect. We don't need to be righteous or superior in the way that that plays out. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of The Allegorical Life. If you're enjoying the podcast, you might like to post a review on Apple Podcasts and help others to discover and enjoy the podcast as well. See you next time.